Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Cudson Vine for December 20th, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, good to have you all both. And in about 20 minutes, it's going to be great to have Drew Savicki on to talk about his new political newsletter, Infinite Monkeys, um, and some other political topics. So, first time, I mean, a second time we've had Drew on. Uh, we had him on a little before the election and now post um, general election, but then, of course, pre runoff, even though he lives in North Carolina, he's following this race like pretty much every political observer around the country is. Uh, but until then, um, we got a myriad of topics to talk about. And, and one of them I kind of wanted to get to uh, pretty quickly is. We had the Electoral College vote on Monday. It went exactly as I guess it was intended to. There were no um, disloyal, rogue electoral voters, uh, faithless um, electoral votes. And so every state where Joe Biden won the majority of the votes, he got the electoral votes. Every state that Donald Trump won the majority of votes, he got the electoral votes. And so, um, or I should say plurality in some cases. I, mean, I know that there may have been places where the Libertarian or other third-party candidates made it a plurality. But still, where they were, should have won the votes by the you know, way things are supposed to go, they did. That actually had Joe Biden winning, I believe, two more electoral votes um, than Donald Trump won by in 2016. So that was kind of like – you know, crisis averted. But the results of the Electoral College have to be certified by Congress on January 6th. Now, we know after what happened in counting the votes for the popular vote, what happened with all of these court cases that have been brought up and dismissed one after another after another. I believe it is one and 61, and the one was probably a very procedural thing. Um, you know, and now the Electoral College, this thing is heading in a direction, but now we have January 6th, and Donald Trump's talking about a wild rally and, and stirring people up, and incoming um, freshman uh, U.S. Senator Tommy Tuberville is talking about challenging the results. I, there may be others, but I did see about Tommy Tuberville, and he's had conversations on the phone with Donald Trump's what I've read. Tim, what do you think may or could happen on January 6th? Gosh, who knows? You know, Trump still maintains with the backing of a lot of these conspiracy types that the election was somehow stolen from him. And we know there was this meeting in the Oval Office on Friday as Sidney Powell was there, Miss Akaka herself. 
as was Michael Flynn. Yeah, that's that's terrific. Mark Meadows was there, the chief of staff. Uh, uh, Pat Simplone, the uh, from the council's office, and a few others. Now, Powell and Flynn strongly advocated drastic action, such as confiscating voting machines or declaring martial law. And of all things, Trump seemed to be receptive to that. Uh, although he said later, no, it didn't happen. Well, um, yeah, somebody just made it up, right? Uh, and, and, of course, thank goodness that Meadows and the council's office was there because they pushed back against that. And um, the meeting got rather heated, according to that. So, uh, you know what, there's no telling what Trump will do. We've learned that about him. I don't believe he's going to leave quietly, or at least that's his indication. I think he's perfectly willing to push us almost to the point of armed revolt or something, or at the minimum cause great damage to the country in order to try to remain in uh, power. Now, I, I know a lot of people think this should just be laughed off or ignored, but I, I, I kind of think that's the... Uh, the worst thing we could do right now, especially when he's talking about taking uh, Miss Powell and naming her like a, a special counsel to investigate election fraud. You know, that, that's that's where we are, and we wait on Trump's next move, I guess, David. Yes, uh, that would give a new meaning to the word special. Um, given how uh, they submitted <laughs> blank documents um, in Wisconsin. Um, Catherine, this wild rally, there was no um, you know, info on what that might look like, but what do you think a wild rally looks like um, to try to you know, seemingly overturn an election? Well, his rallies all look pretty wild to me. Um, with all the unmasked, you know, the the unmasked people and the, you know, really close quarters and him and his, you know, endless stream of consciousness speeches and it's all crazy to me. Um, I, I, I'm with him. I have no idea what what he could what he has in mind. And I'm kind of glad that I can't figure that out. I'm kind of glad that I don't, I don't have any insight into his mind because it's kind of scary. Um, and I, I just can't imagine what he would, how he's going to make this, how he thinks he's going to make this work. Um, but whatever he has in mind, he seems awfully, uh, convinced that he's going to be able to pull it off. I don't I don't know what it is. But. Yeah, I'll say this. Um back in I think it was May of 2019, I went to the um Hot Air Balloon Festival in Decatur, Alabama, one of the largest in the southeast, and there was so much hot air filling those balloons up. Pretty much, Donald Trump's rallies have more hot air than that hot air balloon rally. Uh, but there's no real damage, you know, done. Nobody takes, 
any kind of violent action um, after it. It's just a bunch of, you know, just nonsense. I mean, it, it has less purpose than a, than a high school pep rally. Uh, it may fire them up, but that, that's about it. But now we've heard, you know, Brian Kemp, Republican governor of Georgia. This is one of their people, not a Democrat, which we know they see them as very worthless, just people to lock up left and right just for the crime of being a Democrat. But they gave death threats to, to Brian Kemp. Um, Catherine, I mean, is that kind of talk, this rally would then exacerbate it? I, I certainly think um, that there is the potential there. Uh, I mean, a lot of, uh, not a lot. There are members of this um, base of his that are unstable. We've we've seen that, and um, I think it's a concern. And I think Tim makes a good point that we can't ignore it. And I hope that our, you know, whatever the Secret Service or the FBI or whoever is watching these things is taking some of the, taking this seriously and watching some of these. Um, especially the more visible um, characters and uh, making, you know, securing us in the, in whatever way they can. Um, but, no, I, I think it's very possible that it could incite some kind of violence. Yeah. And you I mean, it already has, can... obviously. Yes, and you mentioned people being unstable, um, and you're absolutely right. And there are people that are unstable – um, that have all kind of political persuasions, and to me, um, one of uh, or two of the best people that may could come together and talk about how dangerous this kind of talk is and how we need to lower the temperature, no matter who you support, is uh, Steve Scalise, Louisiana congressman that got shot a few years ago. Very sadly, luckily he recovered. But he ought to know that this is real and you don't play. And then um, incoming uh, junior senator from the state of Arizona, his wife, Gabrielle Giffords, she, of course, pretty much lost her congressional career, her political career, because her um, injuries, unfortunately, were far worse. And so she really knows. And then, of course, you know, um, Senator Kelly could obviously speak to that as well. And I think if people that had really – um, you know, had things like that would come out and speak, it would be very powerful. Even members of, say, the Kennedy family, the King family, people that have had these kind of tragedies affect them or their families directly could say, this is just not something we play around with. Tim, your thoughts on the rally and then the death threats we've been hearing, in particular, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Well, you know, you, you were talking about people that can make a statement that would be very powerful. But the one that could make a statement that would put a stop to every bit of this is the president. And he just exactly. won't do it. He's doing the opposite. And this is a form of dog whistle politics. And all of these violent groups and these violent and unstable people hear this stuff and they think, in their minds that the president is giving them an okay to uh to go along and and do this stuff to maybe uh force his hand to use the insurrection act or something and declare martial law and he can stay in office and everything will be glorious and 
that includes threatening, you know, public officials and, and even uh, hatching plans, as you saw with the governor of Michigan, stuff like that. These people are for real. Uh, I mean, they, they're out there. And, uh, you, you know, I, I, I don't know if the president fully understands uh, how dangerous a game he's playing here, to be honest with you. And, and you know, I, I, I fear that, that, that something is going to happen. And, and I just hope that all of our uh, highly placed public officials and, and stuff uh, have security and, and they're careful and, and we can just get through these next few weeks. But it's, it's, uh, it's going to be tenuous at best, David. I, I'm really concerned. Yeah, and, and the reason I didn't mention you know, Donald Trump is I just don't have any faith in him being able to do that. I mean, that's just that's why I mentioned. I just don't think he's the the vessel that's going to be willing to do that and understand why that's so important. Well, because um, it is all about him. I think Mike Pence would be more likely to certainly come out and say something, but I don't know that Mike well, Pence then, would have then any impact. Well, then he just has the president turn on him. He's not going to do yeah, that. Exactly. I mean, that, exactly. You know. Yeah, uh, that's but that's what I'm saying. Hey, Donald Trump probably kind of likes that he can juice people up this much. I don't say that he wants somebody to do something, but that he has this kind of power over them. And and that's the you know, getting back to two of the people I mentioned. You know, our Secret Service is, is pretty incredible. You think about all the times, for instance, just Gerald Ford, who wasn't even in a full term of office. They fooled three different. Um, uh, attempts on his life. I mean, they do an incredible job. I'm sure a lot of our executives, hopefully the Georgia State Patrol, GBI, whomever protects uh, Brian Kemp will do a great job. The people that, up in Michigan and Gretchen Whitmer. But, you know, when you have your congressional reps that don't have that type of security or other yeah. figures that speak out, um, th- that's well, where the real fears come. You um, you brought up you brought up an important point. Look at the election college vote the other day we had those people being ushered in side entrances by heavily armed security in and out so that you know somebody wouldn't start or try something with them some of those people we've got people down to the mayor level down to the city council level being threatened I yeah. mean, Trump. Trump has really opened a can of worms here, and it's it's, it's scary. Yeah. Not to mention well, some of the leaders in the in the party, or and in state, and like Stacey Abrams and um, yeah. the people at uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church, they're getting threats. I mean, there's a lot going on. I just want to say something about um, your suggestion about like Steve Scalise or. Um, I just don't think those people have any power over or any influence over these, you know, uh, rogue uh, potential um, actors. I just don't think it would have any impact. I think the only person really that can have any impact on them is the president. They're not going to listen to, they're not going to listen to Mark Kelly. He's just a, crazy democrat and um like the kennedy family they're not going to listen to the kennedy family or the king family i mean steve scalise maybe but i well, not, that, that's not what i mean any, a bipartisan message because whoever came after steve scalise if there's 
they might that person might then listen to Gabrielle Giffords. And, and unfortunately, this has happened in recent years, and I'm, my recent years goes back, you know, nearly 60 years from counting uh, JFK, um, has happened to more Democratic progressive figures. Um, but, you know, you have to then say who has the credibility to say, I've been through this. This is not the route to go. Um, right. You may not speak to the actual person. Like, do, does anybody think that if you could have sent some kind of message of love and understanding a week or two before Dylan Roof did what he did in Charleston, South Carolina, that would change his mind? Probably not. Could you have get that message gotten out there and someone close to him saying, you know, something's a little off about Dylan. Maybe we better check a little more, and maybe a family member could then see something and kind of head something off. But that's where but, you kind of broaden the net. Yeah, I, I, did, just, did. I mean, I, I I understand what you're trying, what, and I don't disagree with your idea, but I just don't think that these people are going to be influenced by anything like that. I think the only, like I said, the only person that is going to be able to stop any of this is the president. I really and, do. And I he sadly right. probably won't. Yeah. And he won't. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's the kind of thing. Now, let's, I don't think we have too much time to get too deep in anything, but we did mention Tommy Tuberville. This is someone that ran for office in a state that was incredibly Republican leaning. Um, you know, Doug Jones won because he ran against a very flawed Roy Moore. And then. Tommy Tuberville, you know, he didn't frequent the Gadsden Mall, so therefore he started with the advantage. Since he's been elected, he's shown that he doesn't know the three branches of government. He had no real clue about what the, what World War II was about, and now he is showing a total lack of either understanding of the Constitution about how he elected a president or just total disregard for it. Tim, what is this saying about the start to Tommy Tuberville's U.S. Senate career. Well, I know what he's doing. He he's a freshman coming in with no seniority and a backbencher, and uh, a lot of politicians now at the federal level don't want to play the game, wait their turn, learn, grow, move up in the ranks and stuff. They want to make a name for themselves immediately. How does he make a name for himself immediately? By saying something just unbelievably out there and latching himself on to, you know, the leader of his party, Donald Trump. And that's what he's done. And it doesn't matter, apparently, to him uh, what this causes or in the way of bad things and that sort of thing. Because he is out to make a name for himself politically and immediately. And I believe with all my heart that's the reason that he has done what he's done. Doesn't even matter if he believes it or not, David. You know it. Sadly, you may be right. Um, Catherine, your thoughts on the start to Tommy Tuberville's career? Well, I don't – I think um... – you know, we criticize, we, we see his, you know, misunderstanding of the three, um, the three sections of government as outrageous. I think a lot of people don't know that information or don't care about it. Maybe they learned it 
in ninth grade civics and they haven't thought about it again and it doesn't mean anything to them and they don't care if their senator knows it or not as long as they, you know, bring home the bacon and, you know, rev up the, especially since he's a former coach, you know, I mean, it's like the perfect, uh, the perfect candidate. Um, as far as this, uh, other stuff, I mean, it, it just feeds right into the base and make, like Tim says, makes him, gives him some ink and some visibility and makes him, you know, and, and makes Trump like him. So, I mean, I think it's outrageous, but I, I just think it's kind of par for the course in our current political scene. Yeah, I mean, Catherine, you're right that the average person may not know a lot of these things, like what are the three branches of government or what are their roles, but the average person may not know what to do when they get to a railroad track uh, as far as safely crossing it. Um, but then you want your bus driver to be able to know it. You know, I mean, you're if you're just an average citizen, your you know level of understanding should be one thing. But you're saying, hey, I want to do this vocation. Um, you should learn more. I mean, honestly, he wasn't like he coached a football season while he was running or what have you. He had been out of football several seasons when he ran, so he should have had time to you know live off the payoff. Which I guess his last stop was University of Cincinnati. He could have lived off of their um, buyout money and then um, studied up on just a few of these things. I mean, these are things that are on the basic U.S. citizenship test. Um, it, you know, what are the intricacies that you learn from a multi-term career? Well, I want to go ahead and welcome into the show for the second time. Um, excited to have Mr. Drew Savacki back with us. Welcome, Drew. Thanks. It's good to be back. Yeah. Well, um Exciting election season, and I think the last time we had you on, you had been doing a series uh, for 270 to win about the history of state of uh, politics in different states, and it was a series that had been going on for several years, and you finished it up. Um, was that series kind of like concluded, and there just wasn't anywhere to go with that? Yeah, yeah, it was supposed to be uh, a lead up until the election. We were looking at every state, uh, all 50 states, and, you know, tried to give a, a, a summation of each state's political history and why you should care about them, even if they're not competitive at the presidential level. Yes, fine series that, that I probably have, will consult in time when I'm having to uh, research on states, so I'm glad it's there, and I hope 270 win. Well, 270 to win will keep it up in uh, perpetuity. Well, now you started a new project on Substack. Before we get into the project, I wanted to ask you, why did you choose the format of Substack? Um, I have been thinking about a uh, a newsletter, and uh, so uh, the guy who wrote the 270 to win article before me, Seth Lutzwitz, uh asked me about it. And it and it just so happened that I had been thinking about doing the same thing, and so it it seemed like a good idea. Well, what if we combined our talents and we did a series together? Uh, I I knew I had a large audience, and uh, I figured people would like to see more of my writing. Yes. Okay. So now you start the um you start the newsletter. You ca you called it Infinite Monkeys, and if people aren't familiar with the sh uh, the um 
analogy with typewriters and Shakespeare and whatever. I'll let you talk about that. But just kind of tell us about the newsletter and the team. I believe it's actually three of you, if I'm not mistaken. Give us all the yeah. information. Yeah, so it's me, uh, Seth, Seth, and a, a Twitter user known as Voter 99 uh, Each week we all just sort of, uh, we each do our own thing, basically, whatever we want to whatever we think is important to cover in looking at the election. Uh, and we also do a, a discussion every week on a, uh, on a topic. Uh, last week we discussed, uh, you know, why Republicans made some gains at the House level in California while Biden carried all those districts. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on under the hood in this election. But, uh, yes. But uh, 280 characters isn't enough to uh, quite explain it all. Definitely so, and and you know that's where we got familiar with you with was uh, through Twitter. Now tell me, um, you mentioned your other user uh, his Twitter handle, Michigan Voter. Is he a mystery per? Or I say he is that a mystery person, um, or, or uh, can yeah. their identity be revealed? Uh, yeah, he's chosen. Yeah, he he just wants to you know, keep his you know, name anonymous, and uh, you know, and uh, I you know I I'm happy to keep it that way. Okay, you you keep up the thing, but now we have political intrigue. Um, for all we know, you know, you might have like Bill Clinton writing for you, or somebody famous. I guess they'd be from Michigan, so somebody famous. Yeah. We'll have to think. Hey, Kid Rock. That's probably. Um, you know, a Michigan political, political theorist there. Um, well, I, I'm, I'll go ahead and I'll pass it over to Catherine. He'll pass it to Tim. And if there's time, I may have some actual uh, political electoral questions. Catherine? Hey, thanks for being on with us tonight, Drew. Um, as you know, uh, we are having a big runoff here in in Georgia in a couple of weeks. And we're all excited about it but we're also all really sick of all the ads <laughs> and I wonder yeah. what, you, what thoughts you had about um, my my really my, my interest lately has been how the campaigns taking advantage of uh, early voting and um, absentee voting and if you have any thoughts about that and how uh if you've seen any of the data and how you think the data is looking in terms of that. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so the runoff is looking to be pretty high turnout for a, for a runoff election. Uh, it's rather unusual to see so many voters interested in these kinds of elections. As we've seen before with uh, Senate runoffs in Georgia, turnout dips quite a bit after the general election, but this time voters seem really engaged. Uh, There's a lot of money being spent on turning out voters. Um, Yeah, uh, one thing that I thought was particularly interesting is how Raphael Warnock is focusing on turning out southwest Georgia, which is home to a large number of rural black voters, and they turned to turn out lower numbers. Uh, That's been one of his key things to do in order to win is turn out those lower propensity black voters in the southwest of the state. A lot of rural counties out there where uh, 
or running in where you know running a digital campaign doesn't really work as well, and so he has to he has to go out there in person and try and you know uh, meet those voters. And, uh, that's that's really one of the things that I thought was the most interesting so far, is uh, focusing on the rural turnout instead of instead of just Atlanta and other urban areas of the state. Yeah, I saw an interview with him where he said, maybe it was a commercial, I don't know, where he said they were all surprised to see him. And he was like, why are they surprised to see me? I'm running for Senate. You know, so I think you're right. I think it's um, uh, unusual to, to you know, make that trip and to focus on those voters. Yeah, they don't, are uh, you- they don't, get, many, yeah, they don't get many candidates out in their part of the state. So it it is quite rare to see a statewide candidate coming down to southwest Georgia. That's uh, definitely uh, not normal. Especially in the COVID era. Uh, yeah. Nobody's, uh, people aren't going anywhere. Well, have you, um, have you seen, uh, have you been paying attention to the campaigns here and the extremely negative ads that, and sort of, not just the ads, just the extremely negative campaigns that the two Republicans are running. And what do you think about that? Do you think they'll go positive at the end, like so often happens? Yeah, they're running. Yeah, they're running probably some of the most negative campaigns of recent memory. And uh, particularly Raphael Warnock is the the, uh, candidate who is primarily targeted for uh, obvious reasons. They've, uh, really sought to demonize him as much as possible. Uh, and, and in his ads, in contrast, uh, someone made a good point that um, Warnock has tried to make himself, uh, you know, make himself appeal to suburban white voters has been the tone of his ads. Everything about them, from the clothes to the neighborhoods to the dog he's walking in them, Everything is designed to appeal to suburban white voters in his campaign. And if you look at the Republican side, they're primarily aiming at turning out rural white voters, particularly in Doug Collins' district, where, where there's such a huge chunk of Republican voters up there in the northeastern part of the state. Well, that's the question. You know, they like Doug Collins. They voted for him overwhelmingly in the race. Will they turn out for someone not named Doug Collins? Will they turn out for Kelly Lester? Yeah, that I, I I think that's a good question. We've all been wondering about that. Um, I, you know, I see what you're saying about the Warnock ad. I think it's one of the be- best ad campaigns I've ever witnessed for a statewide candidate. I've been like so impressed with the quality and um, and uh, uh, just sort of uh, ideas behind the ads. Uh, they're much more positive and much, give a much better portrait of the man than we often see in these ads, except maybe when, you know, Brian Kemp was running and we saw him, you know, pointing a gun at his daughter's boyfriend uh-huh. or, you know, driving around with a gun in the back of his truck. But um, but 
I feel like they're aimed at me, and I'm not. A, I mean, I live in downtown Atlanta. I'm, you know, probably more liberal or far left leaning than most suburban voters. Um, I just feel it. They're they're very optimistic, and I think that is good for everybody. I think you know. I think that appeals to everyone, not just suburban white voters. But I, I get what you're saying. I think it's a good point that they also appeal to them. Um, have mm-hmm. you, do you have any other Do you have any other observations about the runoff that you'd like to share? Well, you know, I think it's you know, uh, Democrats haven't historically run a lot of black candidates for Senate races in the South. That's starting to change. Uh, running Raphael Warnock, a pastor from Atlanta, is a very neat idea. Uh, we don't see many religious leaders, particularly on the Democratic side, run for office. You see a lot of religious people on the Republican side run for office. You don't see too many religious Democrats do the same, take that same plunge. Uh, and I'm wondering if, you know, if he's successful, will that inspire Democrats to recruit other religious leaders to run for office. That's an interesting. That, that'll be an interesting uh, trend to look at if 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 it if he is elected. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to pass it to Tim. I know he has some great questions for you. Thanks, Drew. Sure. Good evening. Good evening, Drew, and thank you for being on again with us. I wanted to jump around the country and ask you about some states. Um, first of all, I noticed that on, on, on Twitter you listed 21 states in which all of the state's congressional districts have voted the same since 2008. That's a long time for 21 states all of the yeah. congressional districts to vote the same in a presidential election. Is that a high number? Is it a low number or is it an average number historically? I would say that's pretty high. Yeah, that's definitely not been the historical norm uh, in this mm-hmm. country. We are definitely seeing more and more partisan voting. Uh, people are increasingly living near other people of that same political belief. Uh huh. Um, so our uh, yeah, and that's kind of an obstacle to drawing fair competitive maps. Well, how do you draw competitive maps when everybody is you know sorting themselves together like that? Uh, it it presents a very big obstacle when everybody wants to live near the people they agree. Yeah, but isn't that a trend that you figure will continue into the near future? I think so. Yeah, I yeah, I think our politics is definitely getting substantially more polarized. I mean, it was pretty polarized 10 years ago, but now mm-hmm. it's like day the comparison. You know, if you mm-hmm. look back, uh, I'm sure you guys remember the Tea Party era. It's just, you know, we, we look at that and say, wow, that's, you know, that's basically nothing compared to what we're seeing now. Yeah. So way more crazy. So so if, if if some states have become so predictable, prized you the most on election night this year, and why? Uh, I go with my home state here of North Carolina. Uh, we uh-huh. seem to have that perpetual Republican lean. You know, we we never stray too far 
in either direction. But I, I thought Biden was the candidate who could really put North Carolina back in the blue column again, but he fell just a point short. Uh, I, I really thought he could do it this time. As he hit, he hit the numbers he needed in, in the big counties, but uh, the rural decline here uh, is it, going to be a problem for Democrats. It's going to well, keep this thing just fairly Republican unless we can find a way to cut yeah. those rural numbers down. So, so one candidate up there who did very well and ran ahead of the, the other Democrats was Cooper. Why yeah. is that? Uh, Cooper what about him? From partially, you know, he's been in elected office since the 80s. He's a staple of North Carolina uh-huh. politics. He was our state attorney general for about four terms before he was elected governor. People know Roy Cooper at this point. You know, he's he's a known quantity in North Carolina politics. Uh, people uh-huh. are very familiar with him. And uh, the Republican nominee against him was our lieutenant governor, Dan Forrest, who's a very socially conservative candidate. Uh, and I think given McCrory's defeat uh, in 2016 and Forrest's defeat this year, it's obvious that voters don't really want that super social conservatism. Uh, people want to go back to more moderate candidates here. Uh, as Cooper's always struck a more moderate tone over his career. Hmm. Um. Now, what I'm about, the next state I'm about to ask you about is way across the country, and it's kind of off the beam a little bit, but you made a very interesting point. You mentioned that for the first time since Hubert Humphrey pulled the trick off in 1968, Utah gave over 35% of its vote this year to the Democratic presidential candidate. Do you have any idea why that happened? Is it Donald Trump or was it something else? You know, I think a lot of people say it's, it's purely a Trump civic thing. And I, I agree, Trump is not the ideal candidate for Mormons, but Utah is fairly urbanized, has above average education level. It's the kind, mm-hmm. if it worked for its religiosity, it's the kind of state you would expect to start swinging towards Democrats. And the uh-huh. Mormons hold liberal views on immigration. Uh, they're not, uh, as the Republican Party tax for the right on immigration, they're going to run into some issues with the Mormons who have always stuck themselves out there as very liberal on the issue. Uh, and I mm. think that's one of the key things to watch about Utah. Uh, okay. Biden yeah, even made, I want it. Yeah, I mean, uh, Biden made even made pretty solid gains in uh, uh, deep red Utah County, which is home to Provo. Uh, he got 37% of the vote in Provo this year, which is uh, pretty amazing considering that's home to Brigham Young University. Oh, uh, that yeah. is like, I don't know if there's another more Mormon city than Provo out there. So uh, there's really something going on with the Mormons. They, they seem to be getting a bit more friendly to Democrats. And that'll be something to watch in the western U.S. There's uh, no shortage of them out there. Utah, Arizona, and some in Colorado, too. Hmm. Now, I want to stay out west uh, for for my final question before I send it back to David. But I don't want to ask you about a state. I want to ask you about a city that that the 
three of us were kind of bantering around uh, in our text to each other this week. Seattle, Washington has got to be probably the most Democratic major city in the country. But two-thirds of that city population is white and like, I don't know, 7% is black. With these numbers, why does Seattle, Washington vote so heavily Democratic, like over 90%? Why? What's going on in that city? And can we import it here? <laughs> yes. I would say one of the big things is the education level. And if you look at the kinds of industries that are Seattle area, what kinds of companies, you know, a lot of tech industry, uh, that's one of the big things that keeps the Seattle area so heavily democratic is its combination of educated white liberals. Uh, you have more educated Asian voters as well. That's a noticeable group. Um, you don't have a lot of blue-collar folks in the Seattle area. It has a lower minority population, I think, uh, than some of the other major cities. I, I think it really comes down to education level these days. This seems to be one of the great divides of our era, as you can uh, hmm. largely predict voting patterns based on how, how people are educated. Well, and with that, I am going to send it back to David. David? All right. Well, I'm going to ask you one question I thought Tim was going to touch on, but we all want to know about it. Last week on the show, we uh, discussed the possible candidacy for Texas governor of Matthew McConaughey. Uh, apparently, he gave a speech um, during the week, and you tweeted, yeah, he's running or something to that effect. Um, why do you think that Matthew McConaughey will run for Texas governor, and will it be independent or Democratic? You know, I mean, he's started to weigh in on a lot of political topics. He's openly talked about running for governor. He's now giving political speeches. He's taking all the, you know, all the steps of a potential candidate. Um, I'm not, it's not clear on which party he would run under, uh, whether he would, I don't know if he's a registered Democrat or an independent Um it would be much easier to run as a, a Democrat in Texas than a, an independent. I, uh, outside of New England and probably the Pacific Northwest, uh, third-party candidates don't really tend to do very well. Uh, so McConaughey obviously has advantages of such high name recognition, and he's probably quite wealthy, so I don't think he would have any trouble with funding his campaign. Uh, but, yeah, I think he'd be a very interesting candidate for governor. Uh, I rather like the idea of uh, celebrity politicians as always a, a fun thing. Over in neighboring New Mexico, Val Kilmer really considered running for governor in 2010. Yeah, uh, uh, really considered it. Uh, obviously, Arnold Schwarzenegger was elected to two terms as governor of California, uh, Jesse Ventura in Minnesota. Well, there's a precedent for uh, celebrity governors, and uh, obviously uh, Ronald Reagan is probably the most famous celebrity governor. Yeah, and Jimmy Davis in Louisiana yep. years ago. Well, um, sure. well, Drew, one more thing um, that uh, you had written about on Infinite Monkeys. You talked about Georgia's 13th congressional district 
that is the district where I grew up in and uh, family roots from multiple generations down in Jonesboro, which um, it wasn't the 13th district back when, because, of course, we added, you know, seats and all. But it's that district. Uh-huh. It's changed in years because, like, the last time before the current redistricting pattern, because um, the, the, from the 2000s and the 2010s, the districts look much more similar than it did before. But, like, from 1992 to 2000, it barbelled between Clayton County all the way down to Muskogee County. And Gil wow. Noddy, who was uh, the daughter and ex-daughter-in-law of Herman Talmadge, one Clayton, one Muskogee, and then lost everything in between, and Matt Collins won enough in between to, even though those are the largest two counties, uh, he defeated her. But that, that's when you could tell they've got to do something about Clayton County, and they made it a Democratic seat, and David Scott won it. Uh, you looked at the district. What do you envision happening moving forward in redistricting? Well, one of the things that's really noticeable since the district was drawn is the black population has substantially increased, which could give Republicans an opportunity to get rid of the second and instead create another majority black seat in the Atlanta area. Since the 13th has gained so many more black voters they have, they could possibly draw two majority black seats instead of one now up there. Uh, it's very possible to see another one. Yeah, Scott's an interesting guy. Uh, he, you know, he's fairly moderate for such a, a suburban, urban seat. Uh, he's a blue dog Democrat. Uh, that's, uh, he survived a very narrow primary this year, thanks to split opposition. And I imagine uh, uh, the left will find a, a better candidate against him for 2022. Uh, and one fun fact about him is that he doesn't even live in his district, and he never has. Um, he's never lived in any version of the district. He, in fact, lives in uh, the 5th District, which used to be John Lewis' district. Yeah, he's actually, um, I think he's a family member of Hank Aaron's family, I think by marriage. Um, And he served in the state senate up in that area and uh, was actually a big gun control advocate when he was in state legislature, uh, he was kind of known for that, so his time in Congress has been a little bit different. Uh, incidentally, when he won in 2002, um, not in that campaign, but in a previous and a later campaign, I worked for both of his uh, top opponents, uh, David Worley and um, Greg Hecht. Um, so I'm just you know, real familiar and fascinated by the district. Well, Drew, before we let you go, um, tell us, tell our readers how they can – Follow you on Twitter and how they can subscribe to your newsletter, um, Infinite Monkeys. Yeah, uh, so you can follow me on Twitter. You can search my handle, which is Senor Raposa. Uh, I'll spell it out for people. It's S-E-N-H-O-R-R-A-P-O-S-A. And you can uh, go to our Substack. You can just Google Substack Infinite Monkeys, and you can uh, – uh, subscribe and you'll get uh, a couple uh, articles every week. Yes. Well, Drew, keep up the great writing, and we hope to have you back on the Kudzu Vine sometime in 2021. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thanks Thank so you, much. Sir. Thanks. That was Drew Savicki. Or Savicki. Um, 
go ahead and look up, look him up on Twitter, follow him, and definitely subscribe to that brand new newsletter um, on Substack. That is a growing medium um, that, that Drew has gotten in on the ground floor of these days. Well, um, right before we get into our kind of what I think will be last topic, uh, Tim, you mentioned Seattle, and I don't know if either one of y'all know the story about Seattle and their rapid transit and MARTA. And it kind of relates to how um, democratic they've become. Um, back in it's the late 60s, there was a, a, a pool of money that cities could do a referendum and then with that build a um, you know light rail line. And Atlanta passed their um, referendum, and Seattle voted theirs down. The U.S. government had earmarked money uh, for both of those referendums to pass, and when Seattle voted theirs down, they already had the money earmarked. They said, Marta, have both pools. And so um, Atlanta got like twice the uh, rail system funding it would have otherwise if Seattle wouldn't have voted that way. And let me ask you all this. Um, do you think there's any chance – that Seattle would uh, vote down a public transportation referendum today. I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, I doubt really. Yeah, we, we got very lucky, and I'm, I say that as a Georgian, um, you know, that Atlanta was able, because I've ridden on MARTA, you know, countless times uh, to, to do that, and that just seems so funny because we would pretty much consider uh, Seattle now a more progressive city than even Atlanta. Um because it sounds like it's a more progressive city voting-wise than almost anywhere in America. But let's stay in Atlanta. Um, that's why I kind of segued there. Uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, she was one of the earliest backers of Joe Biden in the primary, endorsed him. And he has offered her um, two different posts. One was ambassador to the Bahamas, um, which for some people, i.e. me, uh, that sounds like a great post. If Joe Biden really needs somebody from Georgia in their late 40s that has a degree from Georgia State University, I fit the bill just like she does. Call me up, Joe. I'll do the work. I'll keep us on good speed with um, Bahamas or pretty much anywhere in the Caribbean. Um, you know. But she passed that up, and rightfully so, because I think the mayor of Atlanta is a more um, influential, powerful spot. Then, then he came back and said – the Small Business Administration, I believe Linda McMahon is the current head of that. He offered her that. She apparently has turned that down as well. Um, Catherine, what's your thoughts on what's been offered and what her um, take on those roles is and where this thing may be moving forward? Well, I heard a rumor that there was no confirmation about the ambassadorship to the Bahamas, so I don't know if that's I mean, there was a rumor, but I, I still have not seen confirmation of that. But that is, I haven't been looking for it either. Anyway, um, I, I guess I think she's probably planning on running again for mayor. And uh, unless something much more uh, compelling and uh, maybe more visible or um, that speaks to her uh, – really to her interest that she probably would turn something else down as well. Yep. Uh, Tim, your thoughts on the two roles that have been 
rumored to have been offered? Well, um, she basically will only come on board, I think, if she's offered a larger role. Um, yeah, she she really she really doesn't want to do either of those things. She apparently had wanted to be um, secretary of HUD, or, or that that's the rumor out there that she wanted a, you know, a very highly noticeable, very large cabinet position, and the secretary of housing and urban development would fit right in with the fact that she's the mayor of you know, one of the largest cities in the country. and uh, But I, I agree with Catherine. I think she's looking at something down the road in Georgia as an alternative. Who knows? She might take a shot at the governorship one day. It would make perfect sense to me. Uh, another thing she is, and you need to watch out for, is she is very, very good friends with Representative Clyburn over there in South Carolina. He's a very, very powerful man. He could open a lot, a lot of doors for for her, and she is viewed as a rising star in the party, obviously, because of, of her handling of things uh, through the COVID and stuff like that. So uh, you, you're, you're not hearing the last of her. You're only, you're only beginning to hear of her around America, folks that are listening out there tonight. Uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms will be a major player in the Democratic Party, and I think probably in the near future as opposed to the distant future. What's your take on it all, David? Well, and, and interesting you mentioned HUD does make sense. And I'll tell you this. He picked uh, Marsha Fudge, a congresswoman from uh, the Cleveland area. Uh, she may do a magnificent job. But her uh, congressional seat opens up, which I'm sure it'll get filled pretty quickly, and it won't be like too many votes will be decided by that missing seat. I don't think um, the Republican governor up there, DeWine, can appoint anybody in the interim, so there's no fears there. But Nita Turner, um, who apparently never endorsed Joe Biden, um, you know, she's going to run for the seat. Now, that doesn't mean she's going to win. But if she were to win, she's kind of a – uh, hardcore Bernie supporter, one of the ones that really, de- you know, didn't really want to support Hillary Clinton, didn't really want to support uh, Joe Biden. She could become a thorn in the side, so picking Keisha Lance Bottoms would have avoided all that. Uh, but it may not come to fruition, and I'm not that versed in um, Cleveland area politics to know there may be five other candidates running that are all more likely to win. Um, I think you're right about Keisha Lance Bottoms, Catherine, when you said she'll run again. I would assume she wins re-election, and the re-election, it would come up next year, and then that would be four more years. So they give her five years um, in office. Now, Tim, you mentioned the governor's office. Here gets to right. be the trick. Okay, we all assume Stacey Abrams is going to run for um, – you know, the governor's nomination. That's what she kind of said. She didn't want to run for Senate. She wanted that. Well, right. either you lose to her or you run, and whoever, if it was a really competitive race, is weaker for it. And so, therefore, that does the Democratic Party no good. Now, of course, if she said, I don't want to run, it could be one of those situations where it looks like such a Republican year in 2022. Nobody wants it. Um, 
so it tends to be that um, you kind of would be banking on if you ran for governor that you don't run in 2022. You look at 2026, assuming it's an open seat. Um, there's a lot of mm-hmm. moving parts there to get there. Would she then um, – do you all think she has a really good chance if it was an open seat in 2026? Is that when Georgia's moved far enough blue to where maybe the Democrat starts off as the slight favorite, not the slight underdog? What do you think, Catherine? Well, <clears throat> I think there's a lot of a lot of moving parts in there because yeah. Kemp is uh, – Right now, not uh, without risk of having a primary opponent, in my opinion. You know, there's a lot of people who are really mad at him, a lot of Republicans. So there's that. <clears throat> then there's um, – I, I, I think that the first, you know, right of refusal or whatever <clears throat> for a Democrat is going to be Stacey Abrams. I mean – I, I doubt that Keisha would run if Stacey was running. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know them, but it just seems unlikely that that would happen. There's another possibility. So, so I don't know. Um, I don't know. I think it's gonna it's gonna be an interesting. The next year is gonna be interesting to see how these things start to you know, play out. Like, is Kemp going <clears> to <throat> recover in some way or is he still going to be on the outs with the Republicans? And then um, what's Stacey Abrams going to do? And then, of course, we've got the mayor's race. So, I mean, I just think there's a lot a lot going on there to, to try to predict what's going to happen. What do you think, Tim? Well, I was going to say there's another possibility in 2026 is David Perdue gets reelected. This runoff, he's got to run again then. And the way this state is trending, I guarantee he would have a very, very large uh, target on his back uh, as as far as somebody to run against. That, That would be just too good to pass up. And if we have a Democrat in the governor's mansion in 2026, I would say she'd look in in that direction, U.S. Senate. Yeah, and if Kelly Loeffler were to win on you know in this runoff, well, then her seat is up in two years, and she seems even less popular than David Perdue. But then, of course, if the demographics move, I think 2026 becomes a better year than 2024. For both demographic change and um, Democrats just seem to have such a terrible time the first midterm in office. I mean, 2010 and mm-hmm. 1994 were just abysmal. Um, now, 1994 mm-hmm. is a long time ago, but it seems like that trend remains. Um, well, one last question, and that's going to have to be it for tonight, and that is – you know, I got to thinking, and this is all the way back to William Hartsfield and Ivan Allen and a bunch of mayors I don't even know, but then into Maynard Jackson, the only mayor that even attempted to make the move from mayor of Atlanta to statewide office was Andrew Young in 1990, and he lost in the primary to Zell Miller, and we know that 
the demographics in of Georgia and the way the Democratic Whoa. Party functions are a very different place. Uh, Tim, it yeah, sounds like you want to um, jump on this. Why has yeah. the mayorship of Atlanta never been a very good launching pad for statewide office? Yeah, well, I, I was I was going to add one thing. Uh, Maynard Jackson did run for the U.S. Senate. Against, That's right. Um, so you know, I, I I thought I'd throw that in. Yeah. And you know, I, it, it, it's it's hard to say why. Maybe it goes back to this story of two Georges. Uh, the uh, it, it it was odd to me that Lester Maddox did so well. Um, Running state? Why? Because Atlanta was where he was from, which 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 broke the mold. Generally, our governors and stuff like that have come from small towns and stuff. Uh, you just go back through the history of the state with our governors, and that's what's happened. And that's just been something that effectively blocked off the mayors of Atlanta, who were looked upon as you know the big city types who did not know anything about the average person uh, in our area. That's going to change because of the very fact that the 29 counties of the metro area, uh, their population's just exploding. And, and they're going to dominate statewide races at some point. Now, Catherine, last word. I mean, you, you're an Atlanta resident. Why do you think so far the Atlanta mayor's uh, office is not a good launching pad? Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with, um, well, lately with color. You know, mm. uh, we've had black mayors going back to, to Maynard, right? Yes, Maynard first black first. mayor in about 1970, got elected. 71, so, there. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think race plays a you know, big part in uh, Georgia politics. Um, I also think that um, there's a sort of, you know, outside of the Atlanta metro, people are like, you know, like Tim said, he's a big city guy. He doesn't understand, big city guy or gal, doesn't understand, um, you know, what happens in rural Georgia. Also, I think that there's some, you know, like, for instance, Shirley Franklin, I think she felt like the mayor was the job she wanted, and so she didn't pursue anything further. Um, and and I, I think you know it, it might it might all not it might not just be that we don't uh, elect them, but they don't really want to run. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Shirley Franklin because I do think. She was the person that came at the time that had the personality and the the way she was um, perceived by folks even in the metro and outside of the metro area. Um, she was that person that might could have bridged the gap at some point, um, but she didn't did make the run because, you know, used to it wasn't just – it was city of Atlanta and suburbs. Now the city of Atlanta and the suburbs are more on the same page. Um, now, of course, the city – some people say, oh, the city, and it's amazing. It's got all these things outside of uh, the metro Atlanta area. And then some people are like, oh, no, the city, you know, um, could never go there, that kind of thing. And so it's just going to be interesting to see if that changes in time because we know, 
you know, mayor of Seattle, governor of Washington, it happens. Indianapolis, the mayor of Indianapolis used to be like the next step to being governor of um, our Senate of Indiana for a while. Well, want to thank Drew for coming on the show. Um, when we come back, and we are having a show since Christmas kind of uh, timed up pretty nicely this year and New Year's, um, on the 27th, having John Rowley from Nashville, who works a lot in Ohio, he's going to be our guest next Sunday on the Kudzu Vine. Until then, night, everybody. Merry Good Christmas. night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united...